I do a lot of things for other people um, and, and don't think about maybe my needs all the time. And it was one of those few things that I can think of in the last few years that I've made basically because it meant something to me, period. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Hear stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Today in the guest chair, we have Sushama Austin Connor, who I affectionately know as Sue. And not only is Sue a dear friend, but she is also a passionate leader, mother, wife, and friend who leads with her heart in all things. Sue is also currently pursuing her doctorate degree, a dream that she has been thinking about for a long time and finally decided to step out on faith and go for it. You don't want to miss this especially the part about spending 10 summers on her grandparents' farm in Kentucky. Thank you so much, Sue, for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for inviting me. As you know, Disrupting Balance is all about our stories, women's stories, and how We embrace the imbalance to navigate all of the changes and the decisions that come with work, womanhood, and winning. So to jump right in, I'd like to know, what is your story? Yeah, I think that the biggest story right now um, in my life for disrupting balance has been uh, to go back to school last summer. Um, That is probably the biggest balance disruptor um, of my maybe last year and a half, two years, because what it's done is it's offered a whole new level of busy into my life and also into my family's life. So I guess I would start there because I think that's probably where I've had to navigate new waters. Um, My husband and I and our two kids, we have a pretty busy life. And Mm -hmm. I think that this just added an element that was in some ways unexpected, like how much it would change um, the way we we go about um, day-to-day operations. But in the end, I, I will think it will be worth it. I think that it will be something uh, that I'll look back and be glad that I did it when I did, because I have been thinking about this for a very long time. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to do this now. My kids are not getting any younger. They're going to get older. I'm not getting mm-hmm. any younger. I'm getting older. Um, and I think that it was just the right time for me. Instead of just wasting time saying, I'm going to do this in when the boys turn this age. I just said, you know what? I'm just doing this now. Good for you. Yeah. I, I do find that we tend to kind of put off our desires or our needs or our dreams and goals for the sake of either our kids or our spouses or family members. So when you said you just decided you were just going to do it, what was that thought process like for you? Like, can you think through and talk about what that was for you? Were you journaling about it? Were you talking to someone? How did that come to be? Yeah, I think the biggest part of that decision-making would have come for conversations um, with my husband. He and I talk about everything. I don't make many decisions 
without support and an honest conversation. We try to do that for each other. So I definitely talk to him um, quite a bit about it. But in my own way, I sat with it for a very long time. And mm-hmm. I won't say I didn't journal, I, you know, I, I didn't do that, but I did look at what the pros and cons were. And I knew that at this stage of my life, um, where I am looking at the next steps in my own career, I knew that this could be a positive way to fulfill some goals that I have for, for my career in the next couple of years. So this, this degree said to me, you know what, this is the time, the timing was right. But it's also something that I needed to do for me. So I think my thought process was, yes, conversation with my husband, but also um, interior conversation, discerning with myself what my next steps should and can be. And if this could fit into my life in any way, I would make it happen. And so far, it is is working. I won't say it's easy. And I know you know what I mean, because mm-hmm. it's not it's not easy. It's not a walk in the park. But I think the timing was right. And I made a decision that that worked for me. And I have to admit, I will admit, and I think lots of women will probably relate. I do a lot of things for other people um, and, and don't think about maybe my needs all the time. And it was one of those few things that I can think of in the last few years that I've made, basically because it meant something to me, period. So when it first happened, when you first made the decision and you started the process, did you have any like remorse or, you know, or or just, you know, some type of guilt, like maybe I should have waited, maybe I shouldn't have, or were you like going full speed ahead? Like, okay, I'm just going to do this. Yeah, I have tremendous guilt. Um, I I still do. I'm, I'm not even quite a year in. I started last um, August last July or August, and I'll be a year in this summer. And I think every time I leave, and I've had to leave uh, three three times um, for a period of a week. And I I feel guilty in that moment. Like, should I be leaving my kids? You know, it's the middle of the school year, or should I be leaving my kids or in summer camp, and I'm not right Mm -hmm. there beside them. Um, All of those questions come into play. I'm leaving, my husband has a busy career, and I'm just gone for a week. Like, how does that all play out. And I think in those moments, I feel very guilty. But again, I will say that I have so much support from my husband. And I think what's really sweet, too, is I have a ton of support for my kids who were kind of like, I think they think it's sweet that we all have homework. I think they yeah, think it's good. It, yeah, it's kind of cool that like mom's in school, too. She, she you know, she's she's at the table, too, with me. Um, so those things, I think, ultimately, even in all of my guilt, I think what they'll remember about this part of our lives is that mom went back to school. And I don't, in that sense, think I've missed many beats as far as they're concerned um, this year. And so I just have to say to myself, you know what, just keep going because it's not going to be perfect, but eventually I will have this degree done. Exactly. So you talked a little bit earlier about this degree, you know, kind of being part of, you know, your trajectory and where you see yourself in your career. But let's take a step back and tell us about your career. You have a very interesting career, in fact. Yeah, so I have worked at um, Princeton Theological Seminary for about eight, nine years. Um, And I started off in a communications role uh, that I really enjoyed, but I found that program 
it was a fit. It was a better fit. And I had actually worked in um, programming and kind of like I've worked in religious life, programming, communications, marketing for at the very least 15 or 20 years of my career. Um, when I got to Princeton Seminary, I did have that um, background coming in the door with me. And so when I realized the program at Princeton Seminary would be a better fit, I kind of went for a role in that area. So I um, am in uh, continuing education at Princeton Seminary, and I work primarily over a portfolio of programs that um, mm -hmm. involves, I guess in a nutshell, black and brown clergy. Um, but if I just wanted to describe it in more detail, it's basically urban clergy. Um, my portfolio contains programs that I started. I have a program called the Black Theology and Leadership Institute, which I brought to uh Princeton Seminary, maybe about a year into my my working mm -hmm. there, so around um, 2011, and I include I include that in my sort of portfolio of programs. I'm also a part of an urban ministry initiative, which I have been a founding member mm -hmm. of, um, working with two other departments at the seminary. Um, our multicultural office, as well as our field education office. So I think the best of my portfolio is working with black and brown clergy. I think that's where my heart is. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm, I think of myself as a, a pastor um, and I pastor pastors. I do that. That's part of my calling is working with uh, clergy, um, creating programs, creating content, uh, doing things for black and brown clergy that I hope will be a resource in their ministries. Yeah. So tell me about how, what it was like, cause you talk about, you know, really pastoring pastors and, um, supporting black and brown clergy, but you as a black woman in this institution at Princeton Theological Seminary, you're bringing a whole new program, something they've never really done. So what was that experience like in bringing that to the seminary? It was a very um, complex ask of Princeton Seminary because I wasn't um, there for very long when I first proposed it. And I also think to myself too, Princeton Seminary is in some ways a kind of incestuous space, mm -hmm. meaning that it's, filled with alum. Alum come back to work there. So in many ways, I was, I'm surprised all these years later that I basically cold sent in my resume. Wow. I kind of cold, exactly. So that, so I mean that in a really serious way, it is filled with people who are steeped in Princeton Seminary. They are alum or they are spouses of alum or, you know, so I, that isn't my experience. Um, so it was a little complex offering a new idea. I'm not Presbyterian. The seminary is Presbyterian. Um, it, so I had to very quickly kind of share and um, talk about my own skill set so that they knew that, that this program was viable. Uh -huh. And I think women, again, I, I think that women, we can, many of us can say this, like, I'm not good at tooting my own horn. Yeah. Yep. I'm not good at it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not walking into a meeting and telling you this is why we should do this program because I have this much experience and I've worked in this area for, but I had, Wow. I, I had done several um, 
really wonderful programs at Harvard Divinity School and at Wellesley College. So I was not a newbie. I yeah. wasn't just coming in out of nowhere, right? And, yeah. But it's not easy to talk about yourself. And yeah. for women, I think that that is even in even more true in, in, in various fields. But I think in particular for Black women in our various fields, but in my specific example, in academia, it is not easy to toot your own horn. Yeah. And, and I walked in there kind of like not wanting to do that. And I don't think that I did it very well, but I did it well enough that we started the program. Wow. But I guess my advice would be, you know, if you know that you have that skill set, I don't know many men that aren't perfectly okay with telling you how good they are exactly. at something. Exactly. <laughs> and so I work with them all day. They, they know how to say that they're good at something yep. and, and they don't think twice. Yep. And then a black woman gets in there or a woman of color gets in there and you're double and triple thinking your own skill set and expertise. Yeah. So the fact that you're aware of, you know, the this behavior of not really tooting your own horn, do you have a narrative in your head, like when you're in spaces where you have to talk about your expertise? Yeah, I think that in in moments where I know that I need to be a little bit more or a lot more confident than in a, in a normal moment during the day, whether it's a meeting or a presentation or, or just talking to someone on campus, I think that I, I don't know that it's a mantra that I say all the time, but mm -hmm. I have a little bracelet that I wear to work sometimes. And the bracelet just has, it's like one of those, like, it's like kind of, I think it's called mantra band actually. Okay. And it says, I am enough. Oh, wow. And I wear that to work. Um, I have two of them. And then the one that this one in particular that I am mentioning says, I am enough. And I think it's just the no, the knowledge that I have it on and I can peek down in it and know that, you know what, I can walk in this room. Mm -hmm. I am not here by chance. I deserve to be here. And sometimes that's hard to remember mm -hmm. because if you, you know, academia, um, your intellect and your smarts and your, in some ways, your, your intellectual charisma, even that's, that's kind of the, the draw. That's, mm -hmm. that's the, what you that's kind of what you have in an, in an academic, in an academic environment. You have your yeah. smarts, your intellect, your intellectual charisma, if you will. Those are the things you walk in the door with yeah. and that you're judged by. And so I got to remember that, you know what, actually I'm enough. I'm coming in. I'm, I have a skill set, but more than anything, I deserve to be here. So I think that's what it, re it makes. It reminds me that that is a fact. Yeah, that I am enough just the way I am, yep. just the way I walked in this door, that I don't have to pretend to be somebody else. And that, you know, I deserve to be there just like anybody else in this room. Mm -hmm. And I know that that, you know, it, it sounds easier than it actually is. Of course. But of I course. think it's an important right. It's, but it's an important point because I think women, we don't do that first. We don't yeah. walk in and think we deserve to be there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the the, the fact that you have that bracelet, I mean, it mm -hmm. almost, you know, kind of is an indicator of how much we need the reminder, like to have that with yeah. you, to look to, <laughs> right. to remind yourself. Like I have my own little things that I use also just as those reminders, even though it's something we know, it's just not always easy to carry all yeah, that Yeah, it's not. It is not always easy. And I think you do need, I like your question because I like 
this idea of like these, I do have things in my head that I'm thinking, but if in terms of a mantra, probably that would be it. But there's ways to just kind of pump yourself up and make yourself know that you're deserving. Like I should, I should be here. I have something to offer. Um, and I've been there a long time. So I think that that also, uh, speaks to my work and speaks to, um, what I am doing in, in this environment. I'm doing something that is worth still being there. Yeah. So do you think in when you complete your doctorate, do you think that's going to give you um, kind of an extra bump in your confidence in this environment? Or do you think you, you have what you need? The doctorate is just kind of some icing on the cake. I think that I have what I need and it is icing on the cake. I do not think actually that it, it may not add much to my ability to move up within the seminary, Mm -hmm. but um, honey, if I do think it will allow me to move out of the seminary Mm -hmm. into another space to do that with, um, with a little power behind my name, because then I'll have another degree. So I do think, I I think that that is highly possible. That's what I'm working towards, that it would, it would allow me to be able to move over into a different um, institution. That said, you never know. Right. You, you just never know. But in my, I've been there long enough to kind of understand that it most likely it will be something that helps me um, to move around within another organization. And I actually look forward to that. Yeah. That's like navigation at its best. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Know, navigation requires preparation. You can't just kind of jump. It's like, like you said, it took you, right. this was <laughs> in your mind for years, like this process of doing this. Let's rewind a bit. And what most of the folks who are listening don't know is that you have, uh, you spent a number of years, I believe 10 years or 10 summers of your life on a farm in Kentucky. I did. You know? And so when I first heard that, of course, I thought, wow, that is amazing. You know, because you're a black woman like me and I've never even really been on a farm and don't know what it's like. <laughs> right. you, say you spent 10 summers. So tell me about farm life in Kentucky and how yeah. you ended up there. So my father is from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and um, our family has um, property in Bowling Green, Kentucky. My aunt and uncle have a farm. My, my aunt is, uh, now deceased like, uh, two years, two years ago, maybe she's now deceased, but they would invite us to come every single summer. We would just go for the whole summer. And, um, I grew up in Washington DC. So it was just like a welcomed break from the city. Um, Mm -hmm. and in my childhood, of course, I didn't think of it that way, but it was just like going somewhere completely different than where I am all the rest of the month. So going from mm-hmm. DC to Kentucky is kind of like night and day. Um, and being with my aunt and uncle on their farm, um, visiting my grandparents who lived not too far away. We, we mostly went between my um, aunt and uncle's farm and my grandparents' house pretty much all summer, spending the night in, in one of those two places, but primarily at my aunt and uncle's farm. And in the beginning, when I was mu- much younger um they had a working farm that had like many animals um pigs horses um and then as we got older 
my uncle's love was show horses. So he focused primarily on um, showing horses, raising horses and, and showing them in, um, in fairs. So we did over each summer, um, get to do things like ride horses. Um, we spent a ton of time outside. Like, I mean, I try to like bribe my kids to go outside at this yes. point in their lives, but in my, yes. and when we were growing up, there was no, it wasn't a sense that you could watch TV a lot. Yep. <laughs> so we were never indoors to watch TV. Yeah. That wasn't, it just wasn't a thing. It was like you, you I'm here for the summer. I go outside and play. Exactly. And that's what I did. And I, and I, we made up games. We, you know, climbed trees. We, I just remember my brother and I, cause he and I were together the longest in Bowling Green. Like we would go every summer for years, just me and him. And I just remember we would always be racing and he and I would be just like, just hanging out, having watermelons, just like, just being con- like country kids. Um, going to church with my grandfather who went to, um, a church called Mount Zion Baptist church in Bowling Green. And so that experience, I think that experience really, um, it challenged me to kind of know a different experience really early. Farm life is a tough life. Farm life Mm -hmm. is, is in some ways so beautifully simple compared Mm -hmm. to some of the, the ways that we, we think of you know, the kind of the rat race that we think of. Yep. Um, there's something really different about just country air and, and food that you grow in your backyard. And mm. I just remember like my aunt and uncle used to, they would, they didn't have like someone to come take the trash. So they would burn their trash in a um, bin in the backyard. And when I think about them, almost everything they did, they sustained it themselves. So even things like, right? Like even things like trash, the food trash went to the dogs or the hogs. And then the other trash for the most part went, was burned. So that gives you an idea like there. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of waste. Almost everything they, it was um, self-sustaining. Their farm, even from things like trash, they, they took care of that. Do you think, I mean, at some point you could ever like live like that at a certain point or no? You're just accustomed to being a, a city person. I think I'm accustomed. Yeah, I'm a city girl. And I know I'm a city girl. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I think it was really beautiful, but I won't romanticize it <laughs> to say like, I could just be yeah in Bowling Green tomorrow. I think I could be in Bowling Green for a long period of time. I loved it, but I'm yeah. a city girl. I'm totally yeah. a city girl. And I love like, just, I like just being in an urban environment, but it, there was something very special about that experience. And I take it with me and I try to share it with my boys. I mean, they know all about my stories in Bowling Green, almost kind of, it seems like they have been there more often than they have. And and they've only been there twice. Uh, But I think they, once they went, they sort of got what I loved about it. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk about your journey to Fisk, um, Mm -hmm. which for those who may not know, is a historically black institution. Um, Yep. And you have kind of an interesting path towards Fisk and you, you talk, you mentioned to me early on in our early discussion about why it was important for you to attend an HBCU and what it meant for you. I went to a high school in Battle Creek, Michigan. When I left this high school, I was literally running to Fisk. The mm-hmm. high school that I went mm-hmm. to was, is pretty tough to be there. Um, it was pretty tough to be black at that school mm-hmm. and to not 
even have the kind of black experience that people in, in Battle Creek were used to. So not only was I kind of not like the black person that they knew, like other black people in Battle Creek, I was just sort of different and coming from DC. And so my experience was really different. And I think that um, was hard for people to kind of get to know me because they were like, who is this weird girl from DC? And then I'm coming there like, who are these weird people <laughs> in Michigan? The racism was very difficult for me. Yeah. Um, I had been around a more subtle type of racism. And I know some people say like, that's probably sometimes the, the more subtle is the worst. Yeah. Again, for a 16 year old, it does not feel that way. Right, right. And I think the more in your face side of it, which I was confronted with in um, Michigan, that was very painful. And so I was like running to Fisk. Yeah. Um, my dad went to Fisk University. Um, because of my Bowling Green experience, I always flew into Nashville. So I would pass by Fisk all the time, going back and forth yeah. from um, the airport. So I knew Fisk. Fisk held a special place in our family's life even before I went there. Okay. And then once I went there and graduated, my brother went mm -hmm. and both my sisters. Wow. So by the time my youngest sister went and graduated, we had five, basically my whole family, except for my mom. Wow. <laughs> went to this. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's kind of incredible. Um, and I'm really, really proud of that. And Fisk was a, a place that um, kind of welcomed me with open arms I needed yeah. in that moment. I needed support. Yes. I needed a faculty that said, you know what, you are going to do great things in this world. Um, I needed that kind of love and support that I didn't get from the school in Michigan because they didn't know how to do that with a kid like me. Talk about your, your, your parents and your, your cultural breakdown. So your mom is from where, your dad is from where. Mm -hmm. And just talk about how that cultural combination kind of created a little tug and pull in figuring out where you fit, how you fit, and how people could connect with you. But yeah. talk about it in relation to being at Fisk. I um, am from a family that is very, I'd, I'd say really culturally rich. Um, my dad is African-American. Um, as I mentioned, he's from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, my mom is from Guyana mm -hmm. in South America. Um, she is an Indian looking woman and she is, um, so, so some of my family is actually from India and then some are from Barbados. There's a certain kind of look. So I have inherited both sides, um, the African-American side and of course this kind of East Indian mm -hmm. side. And this is just purely, um, facial features and like, you know, my DNA and just my makeup. But I think yeah. what is interesting about my mom is that my mom is a black woman. My mom came to this country and immersed herself in the community that meant the most to her. I think it was the community that she felt so aligned with that right. she is a black woman and she raised us to not even be a little bit unsure of who we are. Yeah. We're black women where I have a brother where he's a black man. We are black people in the U.S. And I think that that was a strength that she gave us early because there wasn't a lot of confusion. Even when it was confusing to other people, it wasn't confusing to us. 
And I think that gift of knowing who you are is, mm-hmm. is a, definitely a survival mechanism. So mm-hmm. I grew up knowing who I was. And when I was confronted, as I've been confronted with racism throughout my life, I think the, the real tough part of being in Michigan was the kind of in-your-face racism that I didn't expect, but again, offered me some strengths to kind of hang on to later. My experience, my racial makeup um, has been fraught with a lot of angst as I try to navigate my way through Battle Creek, Michigan, and even through Fisk at some point. Because I always say, like, um, you know, you, you're not quite Black enough sometimes for people, right. but you know, you, right. but you're not white either. But Fisk did wonders for me though. Like I entered in um, to Fisk from Battle Creek, Michigan, uh, needing exactly what I got from Fisk, which was like this kind of like love and support. And I think I, I give my parents a, a ton of credit for that because they made sure that I knew who I was. They, that's what they, I will always give them a ton of credit for that because I think it could be confusing. I mean, and now we live in a world where, you know, the mixed race and there's a lot of, there, there's a lot to it. You could be a lot of things, but for me, that sense of self and that sense of like, this is who you are. It was, is really important. And do you find that you, you know, take all that, that you you've learned and you're still learning from your parents and you pass it on to your two boys. And if so, what Absolutely. does that look like in the parenting of them and communicating that? Yeah, it it is, um, again, I know just from my upbringing, who to tell them they are. You are two Black boys in America, period. Mm-hmm. But you also have this rich, rich history, this rich, rich uh, family with all of these different people and these cultural, like these really significant cultural markers. Like my, I mean, my family on a, on any good Thanksgiving or any good Christmas looks like the whole entire UN. Wow. You know, like, and that's a gift. I love that. And I offer that to the boys as a treasure, like that your family is so diverse and the foods are just like, incredible yeah, the stories of yeah the stories of like my dad's culture um my mom's culture the growing up their childhood like all of that is just so rich and so the boys the boys are learning all about who they are um and and their your be- their beautiful heritage but they do know who they are in this country mm. if i can offer them some real strength in knowing who they are and, and how special they are um, in, in being who they are, that, that I hope is what we can offer them as parents. So it definitely, I don't think I'm heavy handed with it. They're still young. Yeah. Um, my boys are 10 and 12. So I don't think we're super heavy handed about it. Um, but I do think that they're smart boys. So they kind of get it in some way um, intuitively. Yeah. And we'll be happier with it later because I think the questions are, are starting to come. Like, who am I? There's a lot of hair questions. I actually think it's funny because I don't have girls, but right. um, it's funny because my oldest is really, really into hair. And how old is he? 12. Okay. So he's a tween. He'll be 13 in October. Okay. But I think it's funny because I ne- as he, as they were growing up, you know, I thought like, oh, I don't have a girl. So I'm not going to have like that experience. Uh-huh. He and I have all the same hair products. He's just so funny. So I actually am getting a kick out of watching him do natural hair care, um, exchanging, you know, like, what did he like about this product? And he's going to, he's not going to like me saying that. 
<laughs> yeah, but I do enjoy that. And so I think yeah. like he he loves natural hair. He's learning how to do twists in his afro. And I like it. I think it's yeah, he he's he's trying to figure out his identity. I know. And so in doing that, like with any child, when they're coming to you about stepping into an identity and you're talking about hair and difference and the questions around that. How do you manage that? Because sometimes as a parent, you know, emotions get involved when your child comes and says, oh, somebody said this about my difference. You know, how do you manage the parenting and communicating to your child and the school or whoever, you know, about that whole process? Well, I think because, you know, with the older kid, things happen to him first. Yep. So you're always looking through that kind of prism because Lee, Rowan has gotten this too. He also, that's my younger, he's 10. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he's doing a hair journey. He is, he had a, he has had a faux hawk for a few years. He actually um, just had a little haircut because of all this quarantine stuff. Mm-hmm. He needed a little haircut. So he went really low, but I think Leek has done a ton of like twists and afros, like I said, and just like different styles. And um, I remember that, a kid in his class told him his hair was ugly. Mm. And I will never forget that both because it echoed things that kids would say to me yeah. um, in, in particularly in Michigan yeah. um, about my hair or my bangs or, you know, I, you know, I could just remember all the stuff they said. And I remember thinking that to tell Leek that I wanted to just protect him and say, you know, that person's an idiot or they're yeah. crazy or, but I know that he had to go through the growing pains of that. And he, that's something I really can't protect him from. But when he came home and told me that we did talk about it, we talked about why do people say things like that? What is beautiful about his hair, which is everything. Mm. What is beautiful about him? Um, I tried to give him that little confidence and you know like kids are you know you're my mom you have to say that (laughs) but um I do think like he got my point and um later that school year I went and um talked to the headmaster not about this incident but in general about being able to see my boys yeah and if you are fulfilling the mission that I think you are in your your school you have to see my boys too. Yeah. And so that was a long conversation. And then underneath the umbrella of that conversation, of course, this hair, com- this hair comment came up. Mm. So it was basically to say like, look, I'm, we love this school. We are paying dearly to go here. You need to see my kids. Yep. Like actually see them. I mean, when it comes to our kids, it's so, it's so amazing to me how we're able to step out in front, Yes. you know, be affirmed in our identities as mothers when it comes to our children. But when it comes to ourselves, it requires a little bit of, you know, cajoling and prodding and convincing to kind of step into that same power. With that in mind, I kind of want to talk about this idea of grief as it um, attached to our identities. Because earlier when we spoke, you talked about grieving the loss of a dream that you had, you were a filmmaker. And that comment really stuck with me because I thought, you know what? I was carrying grief over things for years and didn't realize that that was the emotion and the weight that I was carrying. So tell me about your film career and what that meant to you and means to you and the idea of grief around that. So I went to um, Emerson College after Fisk Mm -hmm. 
And I basically, my major there was documentary film production. Um, I love documentaries. Like that's basically all I watch, some form of documentary, whether it's like reality TV or just like your, your PBS documentary. Um, I love documentary films, whatever it is, like true crime documentaries are a favorite. So I always enjoyed stories of real people in real life situations. So I went to Emerson. Um, I got my degree in in documentary uh, film production. Okay. And I got an internship actually with um, WGBH um, in Boston. Okay. And I did an internship at Frontline, which was which is like a pretty renowned documentary house. Okay. It does they do a ton of really beautiful films. And then I ended up working um at WGBH for about three years after that, um, before returning to school to to study um ministry. Got it. To study theology. So it is a a dream of mine that I like the way you said that the the grieving of a person that was like die hard. I am becoming a documentary filmmaker. Like you couldn't tell me anything. Right. When I left, when I left Emerson, I was so pumped and ready to just sort of take on the world. And um, you know, I TV is very gig oriented. Part of the the hardship of that is like when um, my relationship with my husband got to be. Like we knew that this was something real. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed to not be working in like gig environments. Right. So I made the decision to start working or to find a, a full time job mm-hmm. and to do that. And I actually found it. I did find a full time job um, doing documentary. And but after that was not able to kind of make it happen. It was very gig oriented after that. Okay. So okay. I do. I grieve. I grieve maybe my not pursuing it yeah in the way that I should maybe I should have just hung in there I don't know um but I I found myself called to ministry too and somehow I I decided just to go a different route but I think there is for me some grief in that I do think a lot about like well what if what if you don't follow your husband's career you know yeah and you just said you know what actually no I'm going to just do whatever I'm doing in Boston I think about that a lot. Like, what if you, yeah. what if I had just said, nope, I'm going to actually stick this out. What would I be doing? Um, so I think you grieve the loss of a young woman who really had my eye on the prize in that way. Like I wanted to do this and I was really energized and, and honest about that love. Yeah. Now I, my career took a different path and it's a different type of love. Um, it's a different type of, of work. Um, it is more fulfilling because I'm working, I'm still working and interested in real people. Like that is part of what I think does, um, kind of make those two seem a little bit, there's some parallel there that I I enjoy being around real people in real situations, but I love the way you frame that because I do think I do grieve it. And I do think about that young woman like, what would she be doing now if she had just said, I'm going to just sort of stick this out? Mm. Yeah. So I, I can see that. I could definitely imagine what what that could have looked like. Now, do you 
did you carry some of that young woman's thoughts around what she lost when you decided I'm going to do this doctorate? Was any of that in there or, or they were separate and apart, mutually exclusive? I think they were together. I think that young woman is still me. I mean, I remember thinking about doctoral work for like decades ago. Yeah. I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'll probably go back and do another degree. Um, so in that sense, I think I sort of maybe came full circle with her. <laughs> it, uh, mm-hmm. I think that I'm pursuing a dream that I've had for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and so in that way, I probably have sort of uh, met up with her again, uh, at least a piece of me. Yeah. Um, I do think, you know, Hanifa, it's so funny because like when I was I was 20 something, which I don't feel old. But when I think about it that way, I'm like, good grief. That was a long time ago. But I was probably <laughs> 20. It was. I was like 25, I think, when so I just finished Emerson. So somewhere between 25 and 27. And then mm-hmm. I got married when I was 27. Okay. So you see how it all kind of, you know, you yeah. do things based on your love life and your... Right. What what you want to do for and with the other person? So I mean, like some of this, it, it makes perfect sense. What you know, things changed, and you know, my life changed, and I met a great person, and all of those things are so positive. But they all kind of made sense. Like it just sort of like, yeah, you know what? We gotta have to work because we want right. to be together and eventually, you know, live together. And so you gotta make some some decisions. Yeah, you have to make an income. <laughs> Right. You have to make some money. So, yeah. So all of those things kind of make sense in my journey. They really, they really do. You know, you can have this great relationship because we started at the top of this conversation about the support you have with your spouse. And now you're saying, you know, even in this part of the conversation that, you know, it's really about what we wanted to do for each other together and making those decisions. But you're, uh, the point I hear you also making is you can have a great relationship, a great family, strong, supportive, believing in each other, but it all still takes work. Like it takes hard choices. And sometimes you have to put things to the side and then maybe pick it back up later. Do you mm-hmm. find that that has been the case like through the course of your relationship? Yeah, I think it's a constant uh, balance. Mm-hmm. I think that it is constant um, compromising. Um we are very in tune with each other, but it also means that, you know, there's times where you kind of look at your life and you kind of look at your life and say like, like what we were talking about earlier, what are the, what ifs here? Like what, you know, we've followed his career basically has taken us in and out of almost every, everywhere we've moved, we've moved for probably Rob's career once or twice we've moved for mine. Yeah. Um, and that was early and, and, and in some ways it made perfect sense. You know, you move, who's making the most, what's the job, what's the, you know, you make those decisions, those conscious, important decisions together. But then, then there's this piece that's like, but where am I in all of that too? Right. And I think that that is vital in in womanhood and in your your this idea about balance and disrupting balance because I think it, like the more I think about it the more the older I get you do realize the what you've given up and maybe you've given up dreams of like uh, being a Hollywood documentary producer I don't know what I would have done yeah um 
but those dreams became something else. And I think something else manifested and we have a, like a beautiful family and, you know, my boys are, you know, just the light of my life. So I think there's like that kind of the, the kind, I love what you said about grieving actually, but I think that that part of it is that grieving for uh, this other life, but at the same time being extremely grateful for the life that I have. But I think women do that. We do, we, this is our, this is our lot. Yeah. And I, I can absolutely identify with shifting based on the needs of my spouse, because that was my story for a long time too. And I think the way I reacted was to try to fight it, fight to find myself. And in fighting to find myself, I was fighting everybody, like just angry. Right. <laughs> right. right. You know, so. Right. Absolutely. But, you, know, you know, whatever I could grab onto and latch onto, I did for dear life. And like, okay, this is my bit of happiness and identity. Until you get to a place where all these little pieces start coming together and you're like, oh, yes. So this is where I was supposed to be. This is the creation. Exactly. This is what it, yeah, this is where I was being led actually, ultimately. Right. Yeah. So it's quite the process and quite the journey. I'm so glad you were willing to share all of that. What do you love most about yourself? I love most about myself, the ability to get back up. And I think I'm, I'm extremely hard on myself, but I always, always find a way to get back up. But I think if that, that is coming, that is really coming from my heart, actually, I feel a little teary actually about it, but I do think that I, I have tremendous ability to get back up. So in that way, I, I'm very resilient. I am Sushama Austin Connor, and I am disrupting balance by making sure that I always remember that I am enough. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.